Welcome listeners to another episode of the Stimulate Run podcast. Welcome back to returning listeners and welcome to those listening for the first time. I hope you managed to catch up on previous episodes and enjoy what is to come. If you have enjoyed the podcast, I ask if you can leave a review, which will make it more visible for others looking for something to listen to. Feel free to follow me on Instagram at iSwinney88 and Stimulate Health. If you have any suggestions for future guests, feel free to send them through to me via direct message. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Vlad Ixor. Vlad is a professional trail runner for the North Face team and also a running coach. On this episode, Vlad tells us about leaving the Ukraine at a young age, moving to Israel, and then moving to Perth to where he resides now in the Perth Hills. Vlad speaks about his time playing tennis, and that was his first sport he took up when arriving in Australia. Vlad self-admits to having an addictive personality to everything he does, and wherever he does, he plays for keeps. Vlad provides some insight into a life, a stage of his life when he enjoyed a good time, which involved a nightly run to the bottle shop for a six-pack of drinks before it closed. We then move on to his running, what he calls his newest addiction. Vlad also shares his experience as a, plant, as a plant-based runner and gives some suggestions to those who are looking at moving to plant-based diets. Hope you enjoy my chat with Vlad Ixel. For more information on Vlad, as he mentioned, look him up on social media, mainly on Instagram and also his website. Run podcast. I'm quite excited about today's episode. Um, we have a local Perth runner who's doing it quite big on the trail running scene and uh, Vlad's actually one of the first trail runners we've got on the podcast, so it'll be quite interesting to hear a bit more about him and his background in the sport, how he got into the sport, and also, um, I suppose, yeah, just him as an individual. So welcome to the podcast, Vlad Ixel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Vlad, um, I'm going to just throw a, a bit of information out and let me know if I'm wrong or if you want to add a bit more. So you're born in the Ukraine. You moved to Israel and now are residing in the Perth Hills. Is that correct? Yeah, I probably spent another five years in the middle there in Hong Kong. Um, but yeah, pretty much about right. Oh, great. And I suppose immigration to Australia is it's not uncommon, but definitely I'd say uncommon to have that combination going. Um, have you ever bumped into anyone or know anybody who did something similar from similar regions or... I think no. you might be the only ones that I've heard of that's done the Ukraine, Israel, Perth. Um, yeah, I mean, this was this back when I was 14, moving from Israel to, to Australia wasn't easy at all. I think the process took us about four years um, with a lot of like lawyers and legal fees and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I was pretty lucky to, to be able to move and and realistically not go to the army in Israel, which was compulsory and I wasn't too far away from it. And that was probably the main reason that we moved, that my mom didn't want me to go to the army after seeing some of her friends, you know, her, their kids, um, you know, going in the front line um, and some of them losing their lives. So, um, yeah, she decided to kind of get me out of there. And probably one of the best things that ever happened to me, really. So with that, did that... I suppose option um, only come off the table once you became an Australian citizen or is it once you leave Israel? That you don't have to go to the army? Yes. Um, well, technically I still kind of have to. If I ever move back to Israel, I will have to go to the army. 
um, but I've signed a contract with kind of the army and, and the government saying that I will never spend more than three months a year in the country, and that meant that I didn't have to go to, to the army. Okay, yeah, because I know of a few people even with Singaporean history, and they reached the point where they didn't become Australian citizens yet, and they had to go back, or if they landed straight away, they would have been taken straight into enlistment, so... Um, yeah, I mean, something... it's in some countries, I mean, Israel, obviously, the military is a big part of, of the life there, um, but yeah, I was kind of lucky to get away from it, because I was already a bit older as well, um, but yeah, I wouldn't be able to live there um, for more than three months a year, um, unless I would go and redo the army service now. Yeah, right, and the Ukraine, it's, have you been back to the Ukraine ever since leaving, or...? Yeah, I've been there twice. Um, obviously, I left when I was four, so we left exactly when the um, the old Soviet Union um, fell apart. Um, so in um, '91, so pretty much um, just kind of escaped. Um, my grandmother was Jewish, so we had like the opportunity to leave the country, um, not knowing what's going to happen next. And we were actually meant to move to the U.S. because they were opening up their borders, but um, that kind of fell fell through, and Israel was our only option. And yeah, we moved to Israel. And then, when landing in Australia, I suppose you know, being doing it ourselves with when I came with my family, um, but I suppose we came from almost a more, I suppose a mirrored country. But um, coming from the combination you did, how did you assimilate? Did you find the Ukrainian community, or uh, was that I suppose, a resource that you guys um, dipped into at all? No, not at all. No, nothing at all. I mean, um, I guess we we integrated um, quite easily. Um, I mean, my stepdad had a brother here, so he helped us out a little bit in the beginning. But to be honest, I, I don't even know one single Ukrainian here, <laughs> single Israeli even, even to that kind of sense. Um, Especially not back then. Um, we kind of, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty lucky to move here to a country where everything is established and pretty easy to kind of work out. So, I mean, I was 14, so I didn't have to go through a lot of, um, you know, I guess the stuff that my parents had to, um, you know, setting up Medicare and all that and and getting a house and a car. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it wasn't too hard, um, but we kind of did it all our own, on our own. Yeah, I think it's the things you only think of as an adult going, right. wow, yeah. you have to imagine you set that up for yourself and it's a headache if you lost your wallet, but imagine having to do it for your kids and then also both your husband and wife, I suppose, is it's a, a bigger headache than we can ever imagine. Yeah. Um, so you started off as a tennis player. That was, I suppose, was your dream always to play or make it as a tennis player? Yeah, I mean, like in Israel, we didn't, I didn't really have the opportunity. I always wanted to play tennis. I thought it was a cool sport. I never played tennis before moving to Australia. Um, and for my birthday, my parents got me some tennis lessons at the local tennis club. And, you know, I just kind of, I had a Kmart racket. So I had like a $20 Kmart racket. I stole some balls from the tennis coach. And I was just hitting balls against the wall of our back of our unit. So we had this tiny unit that we lived in. And I would be just hitting against the wall there for hours before school and after school. And, you know, within 
I guess probably about a year, a year and a half, I was in. I was playing nationals, um, so which is the top sixty-four players in Australia. Um, so I picked oh, wow. up pretty quickly. Um, you know where you know most kids. I guess they start playing at the age of five or six. You know, I started at fourteen, um, but I was really committed. I was you know, training before and after school by myself. Still going to the lessons once a week for those group lessons that my parents got me. Um, and yeah, really fell fell in love with the sport, but didn't really have it mentally. Um, so I, I guess I had the skills, uh, you know, I had the speed and the endurance and the coordination, but mentally I just wasn't there. Um, yeah, so that kind of fell through when I was 17. So a pretty short, short tennis kind of life that I had, but it was definitely a fun adventure. So that was 2012, you made the absolute switch to running. Um, do you want to give us a bit of insight as to how that came about? Yeah, I mean, I, I stopped playing tennis at the age of probably 17 and a half. Um, and then from there, um, you know, I studied and, and I became a normal teenager. Um, I was smoking and drinking back then, so a bit unhealthy. And then in 2012, just before my 25th birthday, um, I just got a bit tired and and, and just tired of being sick and tired um, so I just wanted to make sure that the next quarter of my life is a bit healthier mm-hmm. um, so I pretty much quit smoking and, and sign up to the Perth Marathon um, two or three days before back then you can still sign up like in person two or three days before um, so I did that and the lady asked me if I ever ran a marathon before and I said no not at all um, so she said kind of good luck and you know I did that marathon and that marathon changed my life pretty much. Yeah, right. That's and you know you didn't just dip your toe in the water and go to the twenty-one. You went all the way to the top. Um, wasn't a bet or it wasn't. Um, was it just something that you know that was going to happen? And was there any fear? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that. I mean, I, you know, being a, an athletic kind of a kid, I always thought that probably I'll run a marathon one day in my life. Um, and then, you know, I went through seven or eight years of the unhealthiest possible way of living. Um, so I just thought I might just give it a try now. What's the worst thing that can happen? I'm going to walk the half of it. Um, and I was pretty good in, in, in not finishing things in my life. Like I was, you know, I was a champion in starting things and, and not finishing them. Um, so to finish that marathon was just incredible, even though it was just such a small thing. You know, such a small goal in many ways, but I could complete it. Um, so I thought, yeah, just going to give it a try, and you know, all I have to do is make it to the finish line. And what was your finish time? Out of interest, um, three hours and eighteen, or three hours and sixteen. Oh, dude, I reckon there'd be a fair few people who would take that as a, a out of nowhere first marathon attempt. Definitely. Um, so you obviously, you had a bit of a pedigree to do this, um, I wouldn't say at the elite level first up, but you weren't your recreational four-hour-plus type runner, which I is... It was all was, Yeah. Like, if I would have had to do it by myself on the same day, you know, I probably would have not made it to the finish line, and I would have probably ran about four and a half hours, um... You know, I was in, I was in so much pain when I finished that. I, I spent like three weeks struggling to walk. 
Like my mom had to bring me food to, to my bed for the first few days because I couldn't walk. Um, you know, I finished that race and I was sitting there on the grass area um, right on the river and I couldn't move for two hours. It took me like two and a half hours to get into my car. And once I got into my car, I was sitting there for like 20 minutes, half an hour before I can even start the car. <laughs> so I was but, I pushed myself mentally. So I, I, I think it was more of a mental push and a physical push. Obviously, yeah. I pushed my body to the extremes. Um, but I, like even today, like, you know, the way that I race in, in races, I, I, I can't do that in training. Um, you know, not even on my best training days, I get to the same levels that I'm in in races. Um, so I think that what pushed me through that day was definitely mental um, strength rather than physical strength. You must look back on that, even if it's, you know, little snippets in a current racing, you know you've been almost in a worse place. You always, I suppose you always hear of people going, oh, I remember my first marathon, and I always look back and go, geez, I've been in a worse place than that. Um, do, you, do you do that when you're in a tough spot in a race? Not really. I mean, I definitely remember the day, like, you know, since that race, I probably would have done at least 200 races. And, you know, some races, I remember nothing about them, really. But definitely this one, um, I remember big parts of it. And, and the pain in that last 10K was, was insane. Um, but I, I've been in worse places, you know, once you start getting into ultra running and distance running, you know, a marathon that day was a pretty nice day compared to some of, you know, some of the races that I've done. Um, you know, they were going on for, for 10 or 12 or 14 hours um, or stage races. So I think that I do remember it. I never kind of look back at it as, as kind of inspirational or anything like that. Um, you know, I got a goldfish memory, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of usually I forget about things and just keep on going forward. Sometimes as a runner, that's all, that's also a good thing. If you've had a terrible race, you can forget about it really quickly. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. You can just you forget about the pain. Like you know, I signed up to to another marathon. A city to surf would have been like, um, you know, five weeks after it, and and the first three weeks I couldn't walk. So, you know, and, and after the city to surf, I signed up to a two hundred and fifty k um, stage race in that Tacoma Desert in Chile. Um, so I just, yeah, I mean, luckily for an ultra runner, it's probably one of the best um, best things to have is a, is a really bad memory because you just forget about the pain that you're going through. You finish the race and then you look you look for the next challenge, look to sign up to the next race. I want to come to that 250K in a second, but when doing some research, um, correct me if this is wrong, but you have, I think you, you must have really enjoyed the social side while you said you were studying and... I saw a quote online uh, when it says, when I was 24, the only running I ever did was to a liquor store before I closed to make sure I had enough bottles. I couldn't sleep without my six beers. Is that correct? Yeah, 100%. I was, I was really addicted. I mean, six beers was kind of like a normal, a six-pack of beer was a normal thing for me at, at that point. Um, but with probably another bottle of wine on most nights, um, not only that, you know, I think the worst part of it was that I was really addicted to energy drinks. Um, you know, I would literally have six to eight big kind of half liter cans of mother most days. Um, you know, so I was really kind of in this circle of, 
getting myself as high as possible through caffeine and then um, you know to fall asleep I just needed that alcohol to kind of bring everything down um, so yeah so many times like you know I'll be studying and you know I realize oh no bottle shop is about to close I better get going and, and yeah I would run there some days with like coins you know just trying to get whatever I can um, you know with with a few dollars realistically um, but yeah it was it was a fun time in many ways, but I'm happy that I got out of it early enough. I guess 24, 25 is, is even considered to be a little bit late, um, mm -hmm. but definitely happy that I've changed that, that kind of course of my life, and, and now I'm addicted to something else. You know, I have a very addictive personality, so, you know, getting in the wrong, in the wrong kind of direction is dangerous for me, even, till, even to now, like, you know. I still have to kind of watch out what I do and, and how much I drink and stuff like that um, to keep it all on the safe side. So with, I suppose, you're saying, you know, you're almost, you're addicted to the running side and the training side now. Do you think, you know, it's a, it's a positive addiction um, because you're getting positive outcome, but then how do you also switch off from that and say, okay, well, I need to pull back a little here to keep myself balanced and on, to make sure it doesn't go over the top? To be honest, I don't. You know, my yep. life is, is 100% around running. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a coach, obviously I work as a running coach, so um, usually I would, let's say, for example, I'll run in the morning, um, come home, then spend five, six hours writing, uh, writing coaching programs and go and do another run, um, then come home and I probably might do some strength work or, or flexibility and I'll be watching a running documentary or you know something about running and then before I go to sleep I'll be reading a, a running book um, you know so really kind of a lot into it the only time I do try and switch off is is when I spend time with my family and um, with my wife but you know other than that I'm kind of all in and that's the only way that I know I never like I never had hobbies in my life like even like you know that kind of example with tennis you know after the first lesson you know the next day I would, uh, that night after the first lesson um, you know I'll probably spend three or four hours hitting a ball against our, our wall of our back unit um, which was like a really tiny area but it was just a way that I guess I'm programmed that I just take things to the extreme and like last year I got into a bit of triathlon just because I had some clients asking for triathlon coaching and, you know, I didn't really want to coach without having any triathlon experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of, uh, you know, I went all in and I started swimming twice a day. I would do a morning swim and an afternoon swim and before I knew it, I signed up to, you know, at least 15 triathlons um, within a space of like six months, um, just kind of taking everything way to, to kind of, hundred percent or nothing and that's the way I've I've done things or I do it a hundred percent or I don't do it at all um, I never had hobbies and stuff like that whatever I do is just that one thing and I try and do it as as good as I can yeah it's, in, it's interesting you say that <coughs> sorry because you a lot of people would look at I'm, I'm very similar so if I commit to something it's I'm not going in and going, oh, it'll be 70% of everything. Oh, it'll be all good. I'm just going to do it. And I'm very much, it's 100%, and that is what I'm dedicated to for the whole board up until the event. 
um, the same, you know, I could be playing social table tennis and it'd be like we're playing for Wimbledon. Um, But then, you know, there's some people who go, oh, well, such is life, we're just playing social table tennis. Um, So it's interesting how, you know, you can get such a... Don't have that switch and um, (laughs) sometimes I wish I did because I'm scared to try like new things um, in many ways, like, you know, if somebody would ask me, hey, come and play golf, you know, first of all, I'd say, no, I don't want to waste my time on a hobby where I'd rather try and, you know, use that time wisely developing a skill like my running or my fitness. Um, but then I'd be scared that, oh, I might like it or I might be a little bit good. And, and then, you know, next thing I know, you know, I'm buying a set of clubs and playing golf all day. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is a bit dangerous sometimes. Absolutely. So I just want to jump back to, you said you mentioned you did your first two marathons and then you went straight to a 250-kilometer ultra. Why such a big jump, I suppose? Why didn't you say, okay, I'm going to try and master the art of this marathon or get as close to? And then the next part of the question, would you go about it exactly the same again if you could? I think that I realized really quickly that a marathon would be the same anywhere in the world that I do it. So, you know, doing a marathon in in, in Perth or Paris or, or, or Egypt would all be the same, realistically the same distance on the same road pretty much. Um, and then I wanted a bigger challenge. I kind of felt like I've done two marathons in a in space of five, six weeks. Um, you know, I Googled the, the hardest running races in the world and, and their race came up and it sounded... Maybe I guess something that I'll be better at. I thought that endurance up might suit me a little bit better. Um, you know, if I look back at it, even if I would have went all in, in in trying to really master a fast marathon, um, you know, would have would have not would have been easy and would have been super hard um, to try and win a big marathon. Where in trail running, I felt like the level was a little bit lower and. Um, you know, I can probably do better um, at that point, and and still till today, you know, in in many ways I do trail running um, because it's a little bit less competitive in in many ways than than road running. Um, I can probably spend the next four or five years just targeting a marathon, and I don't think I'll win a big one. Where in trail running, I have a chance to win one of the big ones. Um, you know, the level is high, but not the same kind of marathon road running levels. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I went with the extreme, the other extreme, um, away from like road running, running on soft sand with a 10 kilogram backpack, um, which was a challenge. And would I do it the same? I think so, because that kind of race changed my life. Um, I think after that, I pretty much committed in, committed to trail running and haven't done too many road races since. Um, and I think that I got to see parts of the world that most tourists don't. Um, you know, people would go to, to Chile and they'll, they'll spend some time in Santiago and, and maybe explore a bit around, but there's no way that they're going to, you know, spend a whole week running 250K around the Atacama Desert. Um, and, and that's just one of, of many races that I've done in some incredible places around the world. Um, so I think that I would just... Yeah, keep it the same way, really. Great. So you have a, you have a very impressive range. So even though you've said you know you haven't really fully gone for the road marathon, 
I'll just list off a few results that I just picked out that I found. Let me know if they're correct or incorrect. So, top three in Tarawera Ultra, is that correct? Tarawera? Yeah. Yes. Um, first in your age group, Ironman Asia Pacific. Yeah, I finished the year as ranked number one in that age group as well. All right, so, uh, so that's Ironman, which is almost, you know, um, you wouldn't say is within your sole focus of training. It, that must have been something that you picked up and then dedicated some time to. Um, and then you have Rottnest Marathon, which you finished second. Um, so, you're, you know, even though you, you do say you're trail-focused and the longer events, you have the, the ability to interchange. And then I know Rottnest is not, you know, massive in the big scheme of the world, but for you to just adapt quite quickly and then go to a road marathon and come second where there are some local guys even who would have dedicated a full 20-week block to for you to go in and pick up second places. It's a massive feather in your cap of range. Yeah, I mean, what? I think when it comes to endurance sports, having a strong base is important. Um, so that Rottnest Marathon, for example, I mean, realistically, it was just a training run at the end of a 200K running week, um, like a longer, faster effort training run, um, you know, that I've been doing for the last seven years, you know, kind of averaging 150 to 200K of running every single week for the last seven years. Um, you know, that base that I have right now allows me to do those things, which, you know, I really enjoy. And it's not just the triathlons um, or the road races, but things like stair races and uphill kind of vertical K races, um, you know, that having that, that kind of base of, of training for so many years now, you know, I can kind of switch switch around quite easily and which which puts a little bit less pressure on me as well like you know I, I wouldn't really call myself like a trail runner or ultra runner or you know a, a specific kind of an athlete I kind of try and do a little bit of everything and and not kind of focus on one thing too much it just makes it a little bit easier I think and and keeps me racing because I think that like you said those people might put 20 weeks specific training for that one race. Um, you know, in those 20 weeks, I would have done 20 races at different distances on, on, on road, on trail, um, you know, which, which I enjoy the most. And in the end of the day, those races don't have prize money or m many of them don't have, um, you know, big prize money that will affect my life. So, you know, I can do those things and I do like racing. Um, so that kind of gives me the opportunity to do different races. Am I right in saying that you, in one year, you ran seven uh, times a hundred k races, and towards I suppose the middle and the end of this, were you ever feeling you're walking a bit of a tightrope, where you had to say, "Okay, hang on, pull back, I can't do all of this." Yeah, I think I think that I got to that point. Where, you know, it's, it's I've done seven hundred k races in a space of yeah about about 12, 13 months, and I literally won six of them and came third in, in one of them. Um, and I was just doing so well, so I just kept on, kept on doing them. But obviously looking at it, running 100K through the mountains is not the healthiest thing for the body. And, you know, I probably did a little bit too much, and I paid for it, you know. I was, I was tired for a long time, um, and I couldn't get back to that fitness level that I was 
when I was doing well at those 100K races. Um, and the worst thing that happened is that I lost my hunger a little bit as well. Um, you know, I think that being hungry and training when you're hungry, it's a lot easier than kind of knowing, well, I've already won 30, 40 races by that point. Um, you know, and I kind of lost that drive a little bit, which was kind of hard to, to get back onto training. I was still racing and doing quite well, but I had to drop down the distance because to do well at a 100K race, you need 75K training runs, you need 60K training runs, you know, once or twice a week. Um, and I just, I wasn't hungry enough to do them. So I'll be, I'll be okay to do my 15K in the morning and 15K at night or, or 30, 40K long runs on the weekend. Um, but to really go out there and do a 60K training run on Tuesday and back it up with another 60K on, on a Thursday, you know, I didn't have that hunger. Um, so I think that two things got lost in that one year of big ultra running racing was that hunger and, and also just getting a little bit tired um, from those long events. Do you feel trail running has exploded in the last um, few years? And do you put this down to anything? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, back, back so looking at that one year where I did really well in trail running, in, in ultra trail running, um, you know, the level wasn't as high as, as what it is today. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, like I got that feeling after two road marathons. Maybe some people get it after 20 road marathons. Um, but with a bit more attention now to trail running, um, with drones and like, you know, those all those cameras that you can run with now, you know, it kind of brought trail running a bit more onto the platforms, onto social media. And, you know, people see a cool video of somebody running in the Alps, you know, they want to give that a try. Um, so I think that the growth came a lot from there. And also the sense that you can do a lot better in trail running today. If you're an average marathon runner that runs three hours for a marathon, um, you might finish in the top thousand in the Berlin Marathon, um, but you have a good chance of finishing in the top ten in your local trail race. Um, so I think that kind of motivated a lot of people to, to kind of change um, to a different sport where they can probably do better and the impact is probably a little bit softer on the body than road running. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been exploding. I mean, when I left Perth in 2014, there was only like three or four trail races. Now there's close to 40 trail races in Perth every year and that number is going to go to 50 <coughs> Um, you know, that sport is really, it's got a couple of good years of growing. Um, road running has, has been decreasing in the West for the last few years. Um, so in Asia and Australia, trail running is exploding right now. And UTA, which is the, one of the biggest races in the world right now, is, is in Sydney, is in the Blue Mountains. Yeah, but you definitely I see in WA it's exploding. <clears throat> um, you know, even... If you go out and do a long run in the trails, you just especially in the summer, there's people everywhere. It's something that I only really found in the last couple of years while building up for an ultra is going out to the trails and living in WA for two close over 15 years now. There was places that I never knew even existed until actually joining in the running circuit. So that's something that almost opens your eyes for being half an hour from home when you've got a whole different community in places like Darlington and Kalamunda as well. 
Um, where do you, I suppose, where do you see trail running going from here? So in the next five years, what do you see happening to the sport? I mean, I would like to see it kind of what, you know, in many ways I like, I like trail running to follow maybe mountain biking. Um, so get a little bit more recognition from like governing bodies, uh, maybe make it to the Olympics because right now, um, you know, it, like pretty much everybody is winning from trail running except the runners. Um, entry fees to races are, are way too expensive, not not just in Australia, everywhere in the world right now. Um, a lot of the race organizers are looking at races as businesses, um, and I don't think it's a bad bad thing, um, but they are making big, big profits, um, where I think there should be maybe a little bit more kind of governing or guidance around that. Um, you know, to put a trail race... You know, in many ways, you don't have to close any roads. You don't have to do anything like that. So anybody can put a trail race on. Um, and it's, realistically speaking, it's 80% profit from the entries. Um, and and I think that is just kind of going a little bit out of hand. Um, where, like, you know, where there's no big prize money at all. Um, so I feel like, you know, hopefully trail running gets, you know, kind of a, guidance or a buddy that kind of looks after her and kind of go look if the race is this distance this is the max amount that you can charge for an entry um or like have a guidance of what you know kind of happen in those races a bit more because i feel right now you know if i went and, and worked as a photographer um in, in a trail race in hong kong for example you know i could make a couple of thousand dollars just a day of shooting where you know the race itself's got no prize money, nothing. Um, you know, while the race organizer is probably going to bank like twenty or thirty thousand dollars. This is in Hong Kong that I'm talking about. Um, you know, so I feel like it's just yeah, it's it seems like it's becoming a bit more of a profit kind of adventure rather than the community and and you know the athletes themselves. Yeah, and I suppose that that's where you see there's such a limited range of high profile trail runners and now you're you're seeing a couple of them almost go to the road so guys like Jim Wormsley and Ryan Sands have gone to the road do you think more of the higher profile trail runners are going to go to the road now no, do you, no? I think they get too much recognition in, in yeah. kind of the sponsors um, but you know that makes it hard and the people just below them so I think mm-hmm. it's very triathlon. Um, so if you have a look at the professionals, you know, the top few guys, the Young Fadinos and, and the Sebastian Kinley and all those guys, they are, they are doing well. But, like, the people that are just below them, you know, are struggling. A lot of them have part-time jobs and, um, and do coaching and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of like they do, they do well, but there's a lot of room for improvement there, I think, in, in triathlon and trail running. Um, but I don't think anybody's going to be moving to the road too soon. Um, you know, Jim Wamsley is one of the best trail runners in the world, um, but his half marathon PB is 104. You know, one of is incredibly fast, incredibly, um, you know, solid result for any runner in the world, but you're not going to win any big half marathon events with that time where, you know, in trail running he's won. Um, Western States twice now, um, so that's going to, yeah, I think, do a lot more for him than 
running a 104 or, or even a 103 half marathon. Absolutely. Uh, so you're a full-time member of the North Face team. When, I suppose, people hear full-time athlete, they only really know the good and the great times. I'm sure that there's also the, the troughs and the realities of it. Do you want to tell us a bit of the realities or the pressures that come with being full-time? Um, oh, well, I wouldn't call myself full-time because I work as a full-time running coach. Um, yep. Um, but definitely having a sponsor that puts a bit of money into you, um, you know, and saying that, I think the North Face is, is really good because I don't really have any pressure. But still, to put that pressure on yourself um, to train and perform and, and, and to do well in races. And, you know, it's it's a bit different when when your whole trips is paid by yourself or, or somebody else pays it, um, you know, I guess that extra pressure is not fun at times, especially when you're not doing well. But then there's also a lot of benefits to it. So, you know, I'm pretty lucky to be in that position that I can be part of such a great brand and, and such a good team. Absolutely. So I've been following you on Instagram for a while now, and it's great when an athlete takes us behind the lens. And I suppose they just give you that behind the scenes into what it actually takes whereas you see some athletes who it's very secretive. Is that something that you purposely do um, for people that follow you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that social media in many ways right now is, is, is like it's, it's so much um, that, you know, we follow so many people that I find myself if I follow somebody and I don't get any value from it, you know, what's the point of wasting my time? Um, so I try, yeah, especially lately, I've been trying to give a bit more value to the people that follow me and um, kind of show them exactly the stuff that I do in my own training um, and hopefully that can benefit them a little bit. Um, I think that I just got to the point where I felt like, um, you know, social media is a big important, is this a big part of, of, of kind of where I am with my sponsorship um, and if I want to make sure that, you know, I, I re-sign another contract next year. I need to make sure that my kind of growth or engagement on social media is pretty high. Um, so it's not enough today, I think, especially in those small sports where we don't live off prize money. Um, it's very important to have a social media um, presence, um, which it just adds another element to the training, um, you know, which is not easy because I know that the companies, all the companies, you know, they wouldn't care about results as much as what they did before social media came out. And today it's more of a combination of your results and your following, um, you know, because they want to get the most for their money. Um, so I needed to make sure that, you know, I get a little bit, a little bit kind of give people a little bit more value so I, so my sponsors can see that and hopefully kind of help me re-sign the next, next contract. Great. Yeah, I think it's awesome, especially the, the stuff that you do in the gym because, you know, Every person, whether they're starting running, even doing other sport, uh, or, you know, just to help them with their functional movement and ability, some of the stuff that you post on social media is really great. So, yeah, I hope you continue doing it and, you know, just keep giving us the insight. Uh, you, so you live a plant-based diet. Can you give some insight into the decision to go plant-based uh, and some of the fueling strategies you employ so maybe give an example of how you make sure you're adequately adequately fueled. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, so when I started running, when I was training for that 250k trail race, you know, I spent every spare moment that I had training or learning about running and about recovery, about strength, about flexibility, um, running shoes, anything that I could help my running. And I came through, obviously, nutrition is a big thing, and I came through a couple of articles, you know, talking about plant-based nutrition. And, you know, to that point, I've been eating meat three times a day for 25 years, pretty much. Um, you know, so I thought I'll give it a try for two weeks, and, and if I don't feel better, I'll go back to the, to what I was doing before. Um, and I couldn't lie to myself, you know, I was feeling better after two weeks, and, and yeah, I've been vegan now for seven years, um, pretty much, and I don't think it's that hard to keep yourself or make sure that you have all the right nutrition. Um, realistically, if you go a lot deeper into micronutrients. Um, you know, I don't count any calories. I don't do anything like that. Um, I just make sure that I eat enough raw food, raw vegetables, um, that my diet is clean as I can. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are, are brainwashed with how much protein they need because, you know, I still get three or four messages a week on my Instagram or, or Facebook where do you get your protein from? Um, so I think that, you know, I was at that stage, you know, when I was 23, 24, and I was going to the gym. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I knew that I needed to get that much protein, that much protein every day. And realistically, once I went plant-based, um, I didn't think about it for the first two or three years. You know, I was just worrying about eating as many different fruits and vegetables as I could. Um, and I was running twice a day. You know, I was running 200K a week. Um, I had zero injuries. I've never had an injury. So I thought that I was doing something right. And, um, you know, I've been doing it since. And to be honest, like my diet is super simple. I usually have fruit for breakfast, salads for lunch, and like a bigger, heavier dinner, which can be like sweet potatoes, potatoes, some days a pasta. Um, but, yeah, all plant-based, as healthy as I can. So stay away from processed foods as much as I can. and you know, it's been working for me well, and, and a lot of athletes have changed in their diets now. You know, when I started running, you know, I was one of those vegan runners, so one of the only few where today, you know, pretty much in, in, in trail running, there's a lot of plant-based diet, plant-based athletes. Yeah, I think it's one of, nutrition is just one of those biggest misconception areas that is around, and you see it still with people carbo-loading and you know, you see the young blokes going to the gym and smashing out a protein shake straight away when they actually don't even know what's in that and yeah. they may as well just go get a balanced meal instead and they're going to save themselves a the ton more money per year. Um, so, that, yeah, it's oh, always one of the things that I look at and go, you know, that marketing has been going on for years and years and years and the big companies realized that a long, long time ago. You know, my parents, you know, for the first five years as I was a vegan, you know, they were still worried about me not getting enough protein. And, you know, while realistically I'm, I'm doing an average of half a marathon every single day and, and I'm recovering. It's not like, you know, I'm going slow. I'm running fast as well and, and I'm recovering. And, you know, it's that brainwash companies that understood that they can, you know, increase their, their, their sales by telling us those things where sometimes you just need to try things for yourself and and see that sometimes it's a lot different than what companies tell you to. 
So if somebody was thinking about going plant-based, would you have any recommendations as to the first steps they need to take so they can, I suppose, successfully uh, transition? Well, I think it's realizing why you're doing it for. I think that's a big thing. Um, any change, if, if you don't know why you're changing it, why you're making that change, it's not going to last for too long. Um, so for me, in the beginning, it was definitely about improved recovery. Um, and I saw, I saw that it was helping me, so there was no way that I was going to go back. And then understanding after that, after a few years, I, I realized there was more than just about me. And this industry, um, you know, the, the, the farming and all that, is not as, as kind of nice as what I thought it was. Um, so if you're starting out, like, you know, just kind of make sure that I understand why you're making that change, um, you know, for health reasons, for environmental reasons, for animal rights reasons. Um, so kind of have something that you can kind of fall back um, onto and then just slowly start introducing more fruits and vegetables and, and taking away some of those animal products um, from your diet and, and you know you will see an improved improving recovery, um, sleep, um, energy levels. Um, you know I've seen so many so many athletes that change their diets and and you know they're improving their running, and their recovery. Um, so even if it's not a full on change, but a couple of days a week, a lot of the people that I coach, um, we do plant based just during the week, um, and you know two or three years down the road they're pretty much fully vegan and they don't need that meat. Um, but a good kind of starting point is, is yeah, being plant-based for weekdays and whatever you want on the weekends. And people slowly start making those decisions that, you know, they don't need those animal products even on the weekend and, and slowly move away from them. Perfect. So for a lot of, I suppose, the, the common person doing a normal nine-to-five in an office running is that escape where I can duck out at lunchtime for an hour or 30 minutes when it's you, your job, do you do you feel that it's still partially you have that escape, or are there times where you can catch yourself going through the motions of doing a session? Yeah, I mean it's not easy. Yeah, like you know, some days you don't really feel like going out, especially if it's raining or it's super cold. Um, but it, it is a bit of an escape for me because I still work probably fifty or sixty hours a week. Um, you know, I coach seven days a week, so. Um, it's still a bit of an escape. Obviously, you know, with running most days twice a day, um, it's less of an escape than what it used to be. Um, but I definitely still get my meditation kind of moments. You know, yesterday I did a, a four-hour run, and, you know, some points of that run, you know, I wouldn't be thinking about nothing for, for like half an hour. Um, so, that, so that's probably the, the most enjoyable kind of times for me in running where you can just shut down and, and not think of anything for, for, you know, a couple of Ks. And before you know it, suddenly you go, wow, I've already done 20K. Um, I think that those kind of moments are, are pretty special still, even after so many runs that I've done in the past seven years. Definitely. If I had to say to you that running was going to be taken away from you tomorrow, what would you fall back to? I mean, I could fall back to an endurance sport, a sport of some kind, maybe cycling or triathlon. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, running is as fun as I enjoy it. I like the competition um, a lot more than the training. Um, 
So if I can find maybe something that can be competitive and be good at, um, I could switch to that. Um, I'll be successful at maybe. Um, but definitely, hopefully, it will be something around endurance because, you know, sports like tennis and, and probably golf, sports that require a lot more time in between points and in between kind of shots, mentally, I'm just not there. Um, so I need a kind of a stupid person sport, which is just doing the same thing for hours and hours um, rather than having any skill. If I asked you if you have a message for your younger self that you could give now, what would it be? Well, like younger self before I started running? Yes. So, it's, you know, going back to your teenage years. Maybe like stop all that kind of drinking and, and partying a bit earlier, maybe like two or three years earlier. You know, even though I had a lot of good time, it was probably a bit too long. It's kind of from the age of, say, 17 and a half till 25. So that's, that's, a, that's a long time of being unhealthy. Even though I traveled quite a lot during that time, um, you know, maybe it would have been nice to finish it all two or three years earlier. Um, you know, probably that's anything that would have been nice that if I would have started running maybe two years before or even started a healthier lifestyle, you know, two or three years earlier. And then almost in reverse, what's the biggest lesson uh, your younger self that taught you that you carry today, if anything? Um, I don't know. When I was young, I was, I was pretty good in not finishing things, where now I'm a lot better in that. But maybe what I've learned is, you know, when, you're not fin- when you start things and you don't really finish them, um, you might as well not start them at all. So if you are going to do something, you stay committed. So I guess... I learned that the hard way of, of years of not finishing things. Um, and that's something that I got better as I get older, is, is, is kind of sticking with things for a bit longer, even when things don't go 100% to plan. And I suppose just to almost finish, do you have, if I was to say who inspires you, do you, do you have any role models that you look to or do you have any mentors in your life that you go to for advice? Not really, to be honest. Um, obviously, when I started running, um, you know, I looked up to people like Killian Jornet and, and Dean Karnazes and, and a lot of those guys. But, you know, then I've done some races with them and, and you know, I kind of just just have the vision of what I want to achieve and I try and stay on my own path. Um, you know, obviously, I get inspired by a lot of athletes in different sports. Um, and, you know, I... All I read is pretty much like sports books and, and, and kind of autobiographies of, of sports people. So I, I do get inspired by people, but I don't really have like a one person or few people that are kind of really motivate me. Um, but I think it's always good to have or kind of follow some, some other athletes to keep the fire going, um, especially when you know, you're doing a sport like endurance sports that just requires a lot of training. And if people wanted to find you on social media or if they were looking for a run coach, where can they find you, Vlad? Yeah, I guess Instagram right now is probably the best thing for, for following me in, um, in social media or Facebook. Um, and then VladExcel.com is, is like a basic website that has a bit of information about my coaching and, and some of my running results. Great. So there you have it, listeners, uh, a chat with Vlad Excel. Thanks, Vlad, so much for coming on and sharing a bit of your time and a bit more about you. It's it's always great to hear a bit more about, I suppose, local Perth people being in Perth, but 
also for people out there just to know a bit more about trail running, which is something that is still quiet, as we mentioned. So thanks so much for your time and your insight today. No, no problem. Thank you for your time.